I'll be reading this morning from Nehemiah chapter 9, just the first four verses, Nehemiah 9. Now on the 24th day of this month, the sons of Israel assembled with fasting and sackcloth and with dirt upon them. And the descendants of Israel separated themselves from all the foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. While they stood in their place, they read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a fourth of the day. And for another fourth, they confessed and worshiped the Lord their God. Now on the Levites' platform stood Joshua, Bani, Cadmiel, Shabaniah, Buni, Sherebiah, Bani, and Shenaniah, and cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. And I'll pray. Lord, I thank you again for just this immense privilege we have to gather together in the name of the Lord Jesus to worship, to sing our praises, and to um, bow before your word and the authority, God, that it has over us. We want to hear you, we want to know you, and to walk with you, to worship you in spirit and truth. And we pray, God, that you would just work in each of us, that we would give our amen to all that you want to say to us. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> well, we've been working through, as you can see, um, Nehemiah, and chapters 9 and 10 really are um, a unit and very hard to divide them up, and yet a lot of material to get through. And there's a speed bump right at the beginning, and it's a big one, so I'm going to spend some time um, working through this. And then we'll see how we can do getting through the rest of the chapter. Um, the two chapters are pretty well divided. <clears throat> you have here in these first four verses some context to what's going to take place and some characteristics that um, influence and govern <coughs> excuse me, um, the prayer that they're going to be offering. But the whole nation is gathered together for the purpose of prayer, for confession, for repentance, and in chapter 10, of making a promise or a covenant with God. So beginning in verse 5, there'll be praise and confession, and then in verse 32, um, petition and confession, and then in chapter 10, um, in the last part of chapter 9, um, their promise or their, or their covenant that they're going to make with God. And so we're told that on the 24th day of the month, the sons of Israel assembled, and they assembled with fasting, in sackcloth, and with dirt upon them. So this is a time of mourning. You remember in chapter 8, Nehemiah and Ezra had said, stop grieving, this is a time of rejoicing. And so they had been celebrating, they had been rejoicing, and yet as the word continues to be read, it continues to have an impact of bringing repentance and brokenness to the people as the reading of God's word will. And so now as they assemble in anticipation of God's word, because this has been going on for a while now, they are coming in sackcloth with dirt upon them before the word is even read. Because it tells us they're coming with a heart of, of brokenness, of hunger, of wanting to receive from the Lord and to turn away from, from their sin, as well as with fasting. It's interesting, we don't talk much about fasting today. It's certainly not anything that that should be legislated, and I believe it's something that, that God wants to work individually in each of our hearts and lives. In Scripture, fasting is always coupled with prayer. It's never something that's just isolated as a way to 
um, lose weight or anything else, but it's, it's meant to be coupled with prayer, and it's a way to give more undistracted devotion to the Lord as we seek Him in prayer. Jesus, in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, He said, whenever you fast. And so the, the assumption seems to be that those who are disciples of Christ will fast. Um, again, the Scripture doesn't tell us how often. It doesn't tell us um, if other people should should, um, if it should be corporate, you know, it's corporate here. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus' assumption is that it should be alone, not to be as hypocrites who, who when they fast, they put on a gloomy face and they go about trying to advertise to everybody that they're fasting so that they can have the praise of men. And he says they, that's all the reward that they'll ever get. But it is a, an important thing, and I believe that as we're sensitive to the Lord, there's times that he will impress upon our hearts that we need to come away and be with the Lord, forego eating or forego something else that's a distraction or a time-consuming thing, and just have as much undistracted time as possible to be with the Lord. Whether it's once a month or once a quarter, it's between you and God. But I also think there are times that God will impose this upon us because we won't do it on our own. I feel like that kind of happened for me with the three weeks that I was laid up with being sick. And um, it was a spiritually a very good time, and I'm thankful for it. As I've said already when I came back from, um, from preaching again after being out for those weeks. And I feel like it's something that God imposed on me. And it's a time when, when my routine was, was not what it had been, and, um, and it was just spiritually a great time to just have a different routine of undistracted devotion to the Lord. There's been many times over the years where I felt like I just was, was needing this and, and, and I would just take an afternoon and go to a place where I could be alone, where, where not have a television, not have cell phone, which is harder and harder to do these days, I understand, and, um, and just spend um, three or four hours with the Lord. Honestly, the first part of it would usually be taking a long nap because I was just exhausted and, and then afterwards having some great undistracted time with God. So it's something that is important. It is not something that is legislated as far as when or how often, but it is something that is assumed that the people of God will take time to fast and to pray. There is no indication that we should put on sackcloth and dirt, which is, I'm thankful for that. Um, but the idea is that our outward demeanor um, um, be reflective of what's going on in our hearts. This was a community thing again. It wasn't for the sake of advertising or promoting their spirituality, but just they wanted to be consistent. This is how, in today, we, we don't usually, um, we, we're not as expressive, we're not as emotional, um, we're not as demonstrative as the Jewish people are, even as the Arab people are. If you ever spend any time traveling in the Middle East, you'll know that they're very demonstrative people. They like to talk with their hands, and they, you know, they're just, they're, um, um, it's fun to be around, but when it comes to their, the practice of their faith, they expect to demonstrate it. And again, it, some, I'm sure some hearts is for the purpose of getting recognition, but I don't believe that's true in every heart. They are naturally a demonstrative people. And so when they pray, they would pray with their hands lifted up, or they might pray with their faces to the ground. I'm not a very demonstrative person, but I know that in my time of prayer, there are times when, again, not always, certainly, but there are, are times when I feel very compelled to demonstrate bodily what's going on in my heart, which means getting on my knees or sometimes just getting on my face before the Lord, 
privately. Nobody else knows. But I, I feel that I, might, I need to be just expressing physically what's going on in my heart. And that's what's happening here. And then it says, and this is where we come to a big speed bump in verse 2. And the descendants of Israel separated themselves from all the foreigners. And this is not the biggest part of the speed bump. But clearly they felt that there are times when unbelievers should not be part of what this is about. It's sad, in my opinion, that um, so many churches today are focused on the unbeliever. And they're not focused on the body of Christ. And I think that's a mistake, personally. There are places and times, surely, where the focus ought to be on the unbeliever. But the gathering of the body of Christ is for the body of Christ. It is a time for the body to come together in the name of the Lord Jesus and to worship Him. If there were, um, if there were a case of church discipline going on and there's not, um, it would be very difficult to handle, always difficult to handle, but particularly difficult if there were unbelievers here because they wouldn't understand. They wouldn't be able to appreciate the value of what's going on, the importance of this, the severity of it, the, the significance of, and the importance of dealing with sin. Um, it would not be the right time for them to be present. There are messages that are preached that honestly I wish were not being broadcast. I wish they were not recorded. I wish they were not being live streamed because there are times when I just am thinking about this group and I don't feel like it's necessarily appropriate that others would be involved with that. These are difficult things, especially today in our time of technology. But there are times when there are situations that are family matters. And as much as possible, that should be pursued. That's what this is about. This is a family matter, about a nation that belongs to God getting right with God. The foreigners wouldn't be able to appreciate this. They would not be able to contribute to what's going on. And in fact, they would be detrimental to what's going on. Because the whole idea of the people of God is that they have been separated. They have been called out. They are distinct from the world around them. Doesn't mean they have no contact, no interactions with the world around them, but there are times when the world should not be present. Not worldliness in the heart and not the worldliness of those who do not know him. But this, and this is one of those times where they're seeking not only to be pure individually, but pure corporately. And the presence of foreigners they saw as something that would dilute and water down what they're wanting to see accomplished in coming to God as one nation seeking after God. But then it says, and they stood and confessed their sins. Public confession national confession, confession of, this, of the nation's sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And now that's difficult. And I've spent some time thinking on this, reading on it, and I, um, I'm sure I will do much more um, in the days and years ahead. We hear a lot about national sin and even the sin of our fathers and the need to confess those sins and even make restitution for the sins of past generations. So I um, 
was, had my attention drawn to this and felt I needed to stop and give some thought to it and look at scripture about it. What is this saying about national confession and particularly confessing even the iniquities of previous generations? Is that something we ought to be doing? Is this something that God wants for all nations? So first, there's just the issue of confession of sin. I think that most evangelicals would say it needs to take place. Scripture is very clear that when God convicts us of sin, He is the light, He is truth, and that by His Holy Spirit, there will be conviction of sin. Well, where there is conviction, there ought to be confession. Confession is simply saying, I agree with you, God. You're saying this is sin. I'm not going to argue. I'm not going to debate. I'm not going to to try to justify myself. I'm not going to rationalize this. I'm just going to say, you're right. It is sin. I confess it, and I turn from it. Most evangelicals would say, yes. And our favorite go-to verse, and I think appropriately, would be 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to cleanse us of of all unrighteousness and to forgive us of our sins. But I have to say, sadly, it's only most evangelicals. I'm of a camp, if you want to call it that, with His Hill and here at Bernie Bible Church all my whole life. I I am very much uh, motivated by when I preach and when I teach to want to lead people to the understanding that Christ is the only one that can live this life. And with that focus, you can't help but talk about the fact that Jesus has finished the work. The cross is complete. There is nothing more to be done. And so we live in thankfulness, not in performance, not in works, but in thankfulness and in faith in response to what he has done for us. So I readily acknowledge that all of our sin has been paid for. Jesus paid for all sin, all my sin, all your sin. And so there are folks, though, that would say if it's all been paid for, then there is nothing to confess. And that is particularly strong in the same camp of folks that emphasize that Christ is our life. um, I know of two very prominent um, folks that they um, they are constantly going around and telling people 1 John 1, 9 does not apply to the Christian. You do not have to confess your sin. I find that disturbing. The opposite, God convicts. To me, it's like saying the Holy Spirit is not going to convict a Christian of sin. And if the Spirit is going to convict us of sin, the opposite of confession would be denial, (laughs) suppression, maybe projecting onto others, making excuses, rationalizations. None of those things are right. Certainly, it's at least denial denying that what the Spirit is saying is true. If the Spirit says, this is sin, then I think the only reasonable response is to say, yes, Lord. We confess it, we agree with Him, we turn from it through faith in Christ. That's walking in the truth. Well, what about a nation and the confession of sin? Well, I don't have any trouble believing that God not only convicts individuals and God not only convicts Christians, but God convicts individual unbelievers. And I believe that God can bring national conviction of sin. That God could cause a whole nation 
I think this was what we see with Jonah when he went to the Ninevites. And that entire city of 200,000 people of the Ninevites repented. They were convicted. And they repented. I believe that God wants to do that. That he wants a people to recognize their sin corporately. To turn from it. And to cry out to God. And it's a valid thing to pray that that would take place in our nation and in any other nation. How could it possibly be a bad thing? So confession of sin ought to be both personal and national, corporate. But here's the thing. It ought to take place because God's word is being preached. And the further an individual gets from God's word, the less likely he is to be convicted, whether that person is a Christian or an unbeliever. And the further away a nation gets from God's word, the more unlikely that nation is going to be convicted of its sin. I'll never forget the illustration I heard from um, Chuck Colson many years ago where there was a battle in World War I want to say two, but it may have been World War I. And there was a small group of British soldiers that were pinned down, and they needed to hold that position at all costs. And they received a radio transmission telling them, you must hold this at all costs. Even if you all die, you must hold this position. And so they radioed back, and they said, you've got to understand, we, we have to have reinforcements. We must have reinforcements. This is impossible. And so they were begging for reinforcements. But the last thing they said was, and if not, three words. And that was broadcast before all the nation of England. And everybody in the nation knew exactly what those three words were a reference to. And if not. And Colson's point was, how many American evangelicals today would know what those three words are referenced to. And they're referenced to when the three friends of Daniel were forced to either die or worship the image that Nebuchadnezzar had made. And those men said to Nebuchadnezzar, our God is able to deliver us. And if not, we will not bow down. And those men were saying, our God is able to deliver us. And if not, we will still fight this battle. And it just galvanized the nation of England as they heard those words. Can you imagine today, the United States, the majority of people in the United States knowing what those three words are referenced to? We are far from the word of God. If we want to see national repentance, we should pray for a revival of God's word to be preached, to be known, to be sought after. There needs to be the preaching of Christ, and with that comes the preaching of His holiness, righteousness, judgment, and sin. In John 16, Jesus says, I will send the Helper, and when He comes, and He will be in you, He will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. Lewis Berry Chafer, though, says we don't have to, as Christians in our preaching, focus on sin. 
Some people just really want every church service to be about hammering sin. Come in and just beat them up over sin. <laughs> you know, and I, I get it. Um, I have a friend who, you know, I've, I've, made, I've made the reference before, and he, he pastors a very, very large church. And uh, I, I, another friend of mine, I, he knows the church personally, has been there. And, uh, and I said, man, what do you account for that? How, how what do you account for his church being so big? And our mutual friend said, there's a lot of people who like to get spanked every Sunday because he's preaching against sin. He's spanking them every Sunday. Then we have others at the other side of the spectrum that will never mention sin. The happy pastor over in Houston will never mention, he will never mention sin. He has said that. He's on record. You will never hear sin mentioned on a Sunday morning in this church. Well, the truth is in the middle. We don't have to always be preaching against sin, but when we're preaching Christ, how can you not preach Christ and not preach His holiness and His righteousness? Lewis Berry Chafer said, we preach Christ, we preach life. We don't preach against the dead leaves. His illustration being that the leaves fall off a tree, not because they're dead, but because of the life flowing through the branches that push them off. And that's what causes those leaves to drop off. I know Lewis Berry Chafer well enough, not personally, but through his writings and his ministry, he was not adverse to speaking on sin. He was adverse to making sin the main thing. The main thing is Jesus Christ in his word. Something isn't right clearly when the preaching of God's word never results in conviction and confession. I would say God's word is not being preached because God's word is living and active and sharper, able to divide between thought and, and intention. But what about, okay, individual confession of sin, good thing. National confession of sin, good thing. And it ought to happen as a consequence of being under God's word. There will be this year at His Hill, as I'm, I'm, I know will happen in the course of Sunday mornings here at Bernie Bible Church. But at His Hill, we see it year after year. There will be students who all of a sudden, one or two, just really, really get disturbed and agitated. And I've come to see many times that the, the cause of the anxiety and the unease is simply God speaking to them. He's putting his finger on something, and it gets uncomfortable, and we start to squirm. I had a chest cold bad one time, lost my voice, couldn't speak, just little peeps came out. And we used to have a gentleman here in the church that was a chiropractor with a sadistic bent. I hope he's listening this morning. He knows I love him. And he said, and I can't even speak, but in his chiropractic knowledge, he knew exactly where the pressure points were on my chest. And he goes, does it hurt when I push here? And I can't even scream because I have no voice. <coughs> and he goes, what about over here? <laughs> and he did that in three or four places on my chest. I thought I was going to pass out. But sometimes that's how God's doing. He'll just put his finger on a spot. 
Everybody around us seems to be fine. And we're really screaming in pain. And we think, oh, that preacher's just coming after me. It's just God coming after you, wanting to address something in your life. So what about the confession of generational sin? Is this something we should be concerned about? Does God hold a nation or an individual responsible for the sins of the fathers? At one level, I think you could point to some scripture where it seems to be the case. I think about Manasseh, the most wicked king of all the kings. Wicked, wicked man. After him came Josiah, the best of all the kings. And Josiah did everything that was humanly possible to undo what Manasseh had done. But the Lord spoke to Israel and said, I'm still, because of Manasseh's sins, going to have my people taken into captivity. Manasseh was dead. And the people are going to be taken into captivity because of what Manasseh did. Personally, I believe it's because they participated. Nobody made them do those things. Josiah was trying to bring about reform, and he corrected a lot of external things, but he could not deal with the hearts of the people. And I believe that God was going to did take the people into exile, not just for what Manasseh did, but because they were participating in what Manasseh did. Or we have the case of um, Saul wiped out some of the Gibeonites. Well, the problem is, is that they had made a, the Gibeonites had made a covenant with Israel, and they were to be under Israel's protection. Saul's dead. A famine comes across the land. David seeks after God and says, what's the cause of this? And God says, it's because of what Saul did. And so there was vengeance taken on Saul's sons in response to what Saul had done. Which brings us to those passages in Deuteronomy 5 and Exodus 20 where the Ten Commandments are given. And those are usually the go-to verses when we talk about generational sin and whether it's something that's real or not and how it impacts us. And just to read one of those from Exodus 20, and it's um, in the Ten Commandments that talk about idolatry. In this very well-known passage, you shall not worship them or serve them. This is Exodus 25. 20 verse 5, For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. So that would seem pretty clear by many people's reading that there is such a thing as generational sin and that you can be suffering because of something that somebody did many generations before you. This teaching on generational sins is especially popular in the Pentecostal and Charismatic churches. One writer I saw said that you could personally be suffering today because of sins that were committed a thousand years ago in your family line. Another writer said that you could be under demonic influence because of what people did in your family generations ago that demon after demon after demon has been 
afflicting your family because of what that family started. One very well-known man, and I won't say who he is, um, toward the end of his ministry, he's not dead yet, but he's no longer ministering publicly as far as I know, he began to tell people, if you adopt a child and things go bad, if your business starts to go bad, if your marriage starts to go bad, it's very likely because you brought in a child who is suffering under generational curses. And he has counseled people to unadopt. And there are many families that have gone through the legal proceedings to unadopt children and then say immediately after they did, their marriage was restored and their businesses began to prosper. I can think of few things more evil than that. So this is a big deal. There are folks that when they go through very difficult times, one after another, and who hasn't experienced that, where all of a sudden, I mean, you're just rocking along, you're, you know, everything's nice, and then boom, it just seems like one day after another is another crisis. The car breaks down in one day. You get sick another day. You get notice that you're going to lose your job on another day. And you go, what is going on? Am I under the curse of God? Is this because of somebody's sin before me? I don't pretend to have all the answers on this, but this is what I want to say on this. First, on the Ten Commandments passages. I, the iniquity of the fathers, will be passed down to the third and fourth generation. Why doesn't it say to the eighth and ninth generation? Or to the 20th and 21st generation? Or the 100th generation? Those that know the Hebrew much better than I do, the Hebrew language, and studied this intensely, some of them are, are in their, there's, there's really oneness of mind here on these scholars from what I can gather, is that for one reason is because you can have four generations alive at the same time. You can have, and we have represented here in this church, my father's a great-grandfather, I'm a grandfather, my children and my grandchildren, four generations. And some people even have the pleasure of being great-great-grandparents. And that's five generations. And what does the passage say? I will pass down the iniquity of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. So that's four and five generations total. That's how many people can observe a father's sin and can choose to follow in those steps. That's how far the influence of one person can go. So I don't think for a minute that this is, this is God somehow spiritually putting something onto these people. I think this is something that they are observing and doing. And to put more weight on that, in those same passages says, I will pass down the iniquity of the fathers to the third and fourth generation on those who hate me. So that's a, a condition on that. That's a restriction. It doesn't say on all the people for the third and fourth generation, but it says on those of those generations who hate me. It is they're likely to repeat the same sins that they are watching at home. Amen. As long as that great-great-grandfather's alive and he's still in that home and he's still having influence, anybody in that home that is not walking with God, it's very likely they're going to be under the influence of that great-great-grandfather. We understand that. 
There is nothing in that passage that says God will put the punishment of the sin on other generations. Because that now we've stepped into unrighteousness, injustice. For God to punish someone for what they have not done is the very definition of injustice. And he is a righteous and just God. So God's judgment falls on those who sin. People can get caught up. They can be not, not, it's not them being punished, but they can be impacted by other people's sin. That is not God punishing them. That is not God substituting them. I've used the illustration, if, if there's a, a young woman pregnant and she's addicted to drugs, when that baby is born, that baby would be born with a drug addiction. That is not God punishing the child. That is the child suffering under the mother's sin. God does not punish innocent people for what they have not done. He cannot. I don't see anything in Scripture that specifically mentions a generational curse. That doesn't mean that it's not spoken of. So it's, in other words, inconclusive to say there is no specific mention of those two words, generational curse. It doesn't occur. That's not conclusive, but it is significant. The concept or the idea of God cursing innocent people because of what happened in a previous generation is incompatible, contradictory with the righteousness and justice of God. Over the years, <coughs> I've made reference many times to Ezekiel 18, where there's an entire chapter devoted to this subject. And God says, I want you to just get rid of the thought that I ever, ever punish an innocent child for what the father did. It never happens. Ezekiel 18.20 is the summary verse for that chapter. God says he will punish each person individually for what they've done. Never the father for the sins of the sons or the sons for the sins of the father. We know from the New Testament that each person will stand before God and give account of his own sin. Romans 2, 5 and 6. Romans 14, 10 to 12. And 2 Corinthians 5, 10. Three very specific passages that say when we stand before God, each person will give an account of himself. And I'm glad. I am not going to have to give an account for what my forefathers did. I don't even know, in most instances, what my forefathers did. I don't even know their names, much less what they did. And the scripture is clear. When we stand before God, he is not going to say, you should have repented of being an American because of the sins of America. He's going to say, this is what you did. And I'm holding you account for what you did, not what the nation did, either in your generation or in another time. And for me, the biggest verse that refutes this is from Colossians 2, 13 and 15, where it says the certificate of debt 
against us has been canceled. So how can there be a debt greater than my own sin? But if there could be a, great, a debt greater than my personal sin, maybe the sin of my forefathers, it still stands. God's word says the certificate of debt against me has been canceled. Therefore, I do not need to confess the sins of my fathers. I can grieve over it. I can acknowledge that it was sin. I can say it should have never happened. It was wrong. But I do not need to take responsibility for what I had nothing to do with. And I do not need to feel guilty over what I had nothing to do with. The certificate of debt has been canceled. And in John 8, 36, Jesus says, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Free from all condemnation. To believe in generational sin after having received Christ, to think that you could be living under the, the judgment or the curse of previous generations, when you have placed your faith in Christ, and you are a new creature in Christ, and all of your sin has been paid for, and the certificate of debt has been canceled, to believe in generational sin, in spite of all that, is to deny the completion of the atonement of Jesus Christ. And it is to deny the sufficiency of God's word. Israel confessed the sins of their fathers. Why? They obviously felt a strong sense of solidarity with those previous generations, partly because they were under a covenant relationship, Israel was. No other nation is under a covenant relationship with God. That was part of it, no doubt. But in this context of Nehemiah 9, just catch this with me and look at how this flows. Beginning in verse 5, the middle of the verse, Arise, bless the Lord your God forever and ever. Oh, may thy glorious name be blessed and exalted above all blessing and praise. Thou alone art the Lord. Thou hast made the heavens, the, the heavens of heavens with all their host, the earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that is in them. Thou dost give life to all of them, and the heavenly host bows down. This begins, my point is, this is a, is a prayer of praise. Okay, they're praising God. And then beginning in, in, in verse 19, thou didst see the affliction of, your, of our fathers. Verse 10, thou didst perform signs. For, thou didst know, and thou didst, you did these things occurs 18 times between verse 9 and verse 15. You are to be praised. You've done all these things. And then, but, verse 16, but they, our fathers, acted arrogantly. And he begins to confess their national sins, sins of previous generations. But the whole point is, look at how he finishes that up. Then he says, in, in, he says, look at verse 17, And they refused to listen and did not remember your wondrous deeds which you have, have before, performed among them. So they became stubborn and appointed a leader to return to the slaver, their slavery in Egypt. But... You are a God of forgiveness, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness, and thou didst not forsake them. See, this is, a, this is a, if anything, a psalm of praise, a song of praise. 
And so the reason they're even recalling the sins of previous generation is because their sin was opportunity to see the faithfulness of God. And the context here is praising God, not confessing sin. The confession of the sin is incidental, as it were. It's just illustrative of what the point is. He is a good, faithful, compassionate God who has mercy on all. That was the point of mentioning the sin. Not because they're trying to be free of it, not because they felt they were under a curse of it, but simply the previous generation's sins was opportunity to see the goodness of God. And they're praising God. Shouldn't we do the same? The devil wants us to remember our sin. Maybe the devil wants to beat us up over the sins of previous generations and make us incur a condemnation that is not ours to take. There's a passage in Pilgrim's Progress where Pilgrim is under accusation. I forget the name of the one that's accusing him. And he's just railing all these things about him. And Pilgrim, in humility, after the guy's finished just attacking him and hurling all this abuse on him, Pilgrim says, and that's only the half of it. You've been kind. You could have said so much more. And he uses all that sin that's being brought against him to say, I don't deny it, but it just makes me think of how wonderful my Savior is and all that he has done for me. And then I stand forgiven and the burden has been rolled off of me because of Jesus Christ and what he's accomplished on my behalf. I personally think that's the better way to look at Nehemiah 9. They are not trying to get out from underneath the curse. They are praising God for his faithfulness. And as you think of your sin, as I think of my sin, say, thank you, God. It's been paid for. It's been forgiven. I don't have to live under condemnation. I don't have to try and, and, and deny it, act like it's not true, but I can just say, thank you, Jesus. It's true. Apart from you, there's no good thing in me. But Jesus has forgiven me. Jesus has cleansed me. And the certificate of debt against me has been canceled. I don't have to worry about what previous generations have done. If anything, we think about the evils of pre previous generations and see the goodness that we live under now, and we go, thank you, God, for your mercies. We don't deserve this. But you've been good to us. You are compassionate and full of mercy. Your loving kindness is abounding. So you are slow to anger and good to all. Well, we didn't get past the speed bump. I hope and trust it was profitable. Next Sunday, we'll get into the rest of chapter 9 and chapter 10. I'll close this in prayer. God, I thank you for your word. Thank you, God, that we live free in Jesus, free of the condemnation and accusations of the devil, free of the curse, God, of previous generations. Thank you that all our sin has been paid for, that the atonement of Jesus is complete. And when Jesus, you cried from that cross, it is finished. You meant every bit of what that implies. And I thank you, God, that as we are reminded at times of our sin, whether through your word exposing it or those that we love, 
bring it to our attention. Or being reminded of what previous generations have done. It is all motivation to thank you for your compassion, your loving kindness, your grace, and above all, for Jesus, who gave himself for us. In Christ's name.